Hey guys, welcome back to the Earth to Tia podcast. So, I've been away for a while and I had spent some time really thinking about what I wanted my content to focus on. And it wasn't that I didn't have time to record any episodes because I sometimes do at least once or twice a week. But like I said, the main focus was narrowing narrowing down what I want my content to be about. And I felt like my topics were interesting, of course, because I always would have a story to tell, some useful information. But I felt like it was important for me to stick to my guns and set myself out apart from the other podcasters and that cookie cutter uh, the cookie cutter topics and content that's focused on like dating relationships, personal life, stuff like that. I don't mind being candid, but I wanted to focus on what would make my podcast interesting. So I decided to go back to what I was initially doing when I started blogging, which was focusing on um, movies and TV shows. And I felt like that was also something that many of you can relate to and it will open up discussion or whatever for discussing favorite movies, plots, TV shows, what we think is going to happen next and what's to come for like the next season or what we think the writers, how, how the show is being shaped. So with that being said, we'll just get right into it. So, I haven't been to the movies since August, and that's really not that long ago, but it feels like forever because I just don't really have enough time nowadays. Well, not time, but I don't have the energy to sit in the movies. I always feel kind of tired, and I don't want to be that person that falls asleep in the movies. So, I try to stick to screaming at home. But the last two movies that I saw were Black Klansmen which was a Spike Lee joint, and um, Hereditary, which was a A24 movie. So Black Klansman I saw towards the end of August. I saw it the first day it came out, and then I went and saw it again. And I noticed some stuff the second time around, but the first time I was just, like, watching. I was just a little too excited and everything. So I was just a little distracted. And then sometimes I like the google the actors and stuff while i'm at the movies it's a horrible habit but i just like to know who i'm looking at and um it was interesting to see david washington denzel washington's son in the movie i hadn't ever seen him before so i was interested to see if his uh acting abilities were anything like his dad's and he was a pretty decent actor and i think that it's important for him as an actor to set himself apart from his dad's own career to develop one of his own. And I think that he got a really good jump start with this movie, especially working with Spike Lee and such a, what's the word? Like, I don't want to say pivotal, but I do want to say like, uh, it, it might have the possibility of becoming like a cult classic type movie, but very popular amongst, black people and kind of shaking things up within white pop culture and white history or whatever so and it wasn't the movie wasn't even really whitewash um I was happy to see Adam Driver from 
the HBO show Girls with Lena Dunham. She's not really a great person, but um, before I found out she was a shitty person, I was really pleased with the show. But then once I realized who she was and then she was trying to base the show on some alternate reality of, I guess, what she would imagine her life to be like in an ideal world or something. I don't fucking know. But um, he was a really good actor in that. And then it was cool to see him in Black Klansman as well. Uh, what else was really good about that movie? It was just interesting to see what it was like during the 70s for the black community in Colorado. And as someone who has been born and raised on the East Coast, especially in Baltimore, where it's like a little metropolitan, I've just never, I don't want to sound ignorant, but it's just so interesting to imagine, like, there are black people in places like Colorado and Kansas and stuff. And it's just, I think it's so interesting because it makes me wonder what led to their family or them just going in that direction, especially in the 70s which was not even that far from Jim Crow and segregation. Like, what makes you feel comfortable about being there? But um, with that being said, the... Shoot, I can't even remember his name. But the basis of the movie was about a cop who did some... uh. He did some military work. He was either in like the army or the navy or something like that. And um, he decided to join the police force. His name was Ron Stallworth. So he was an Afro, very black man in this white redneck town. And he really wasn't. Like, he didn't have a warm welcome when he came in. So, and to me, that would have been already a red flag. Like, I'm going into a a white majority workplace, especially with the police, and they're already not feeling me. Like, why would I want to continue to push the work there? But I think his logic was that despite the fact that there were bad cops and bad white cops on the streets, it was important to have someone like himself who he would consider to be a good person to balance things out so he pushes through with this and he works with like a lot of weird nasty white men and it was just so interesting watching the movie because they used a lot of slurs that I hadn't heard like one of the slurs that I remember was toad and I hadn't heard of that ever before um but it was just a derogatory term used to speak on speak of a black person and um he really ron stallworth had really pushed because this movie is based on a true story well i guess loosely based sorry there's always some fiction to spice things up but um yeah so he really really pushes to want to join the different department and become special investigations and he ends up being put on something for a black rights speaker. 
Kwame. Um, I'm born in 94, so I'm like, I don't know who the fuck these people are. But Kwame Torre. Okay, he's a real person. Sorry, I don't want to be ignorant. But he was a part of the civil rights movement. And um, he came and spoke at the university in Colorado. So they told him that, well, maybe you should go and you'll blend in because you're black. You'll blend in into this event and you'll be able to um, sit and listen in and see if he gets people agitated and riled up and ready to do something. And he was a little apprehensive, but he agreed to go along with it. And, uh, yeah, he ended up meeting some girl. She was the president of the Black Student Union. And he talked to her. And he ended up liking her, but it got com- it got really, really complicated because he was working. So it was kind of like... He was using her, even though he was attracted to her, but he was still using her for information and playing along to feed into whatever the fuck it was that his job thought he was going to stop and rain on the civil rights movement thing when all the guy was doing was talking and just empowering the black people. So then he gets bored because they couldn't get anything out of that um, event that the black student union had. So he's still at the office, he's bored, he's just reading a newspaper. So when he reads the newspaper, he comes across um, a, I wanna say a posting? I don't know what they call it in the newspaper, but um, basically the KKK, oh, an ad. The KKK was advertising. And I was just like, what the fuck kind of time was that that folks were advertising for the KKK it was just like wow shit was really fucked up I just don't know how black people did it at that time because it just seemed right now tensions are high but it just seemed like tensions were just extra extra high at that time because those people were allowed to be racist and prejudiced and discriminatory Um, back to what I was saying though. So he calls them, he impersonates a white person and puts on a white voice, but he makes a stupid ass mistake of using his real name, which sounded really white when you think about it. So they really fell for it. And he got, um, Adam Driver's character who was Jewish and they pretty much hate anybody. So he was just, they... They were both subjected to different forms of racism and um, prejudice. So Ron Stallworth would speak to them on the phone. And then um, Adam Driver's character, let me see if I can find his name, was Flip. He would go and speak to, he would go to them in person and try to maintain and keep up with the information that Ron spoke with them about on the phone to try to keep up this whole fake white Ron Stallworth thing going on and um for him it was kind of like a self-reflection sort of thing kind of coming to terms with his own identity in a process of stopping these races from following through with um bombing the black student union and um 
because he was Jewish, but he just never really identified. So he would wear the Star of David and such. But he didn't realize how Jewish he was until he listened to them um, berate and speak poorly of Jewish people. Um, the ending was really fucking weird. And it ended like how Crooklyn did, where it was just really eerie. And it was like, are they dreaming? Are they high? Because, I mean, it was the 70s. So I'm just like, what's what's going on? But, I mean, Spike Lee just can't help himself with the weird shit. Other than that, the movie ended as expected, which was that <laughs> Ron did a really good job on his case, but they had to throw it out because white America and yeah so with that being said we'll take a small break okay now I'm back so Now we're going to talk about Hereditary. I feel like Hereditary really shook some things up as far as the horror genre for 2018. Um, I just, I was really intrigued by this movie. It was scary as shit. It was really creepy. It was really disgusting. It was just like, it just checked off and fit into like the whole rubric of a horror movie. It had everything. And I always love a horror movie that has a little bit of truth to it. That was That's what makes it really scary for me. And I mean, we all feel differently about our expectations for horror movies, but I feel like a horror movie should have disgust, truth, spookiness. And yeah, that's pretty much it. Like that's just what it should have. Those are the good components of a horror movie. And this movie basically followed the Grand family. And it followed this hereditary, like, curse, I want to say. They inherited, this family inherited, even the husband by marriage, inherited the shitty fate of satanism and death and sacrifice and just you name it they they inherited the worst of it and it was all due to their grandmother's pact to her cult she made a promise and some sacrifices prior to maybe even their even the uh Annie Graham's existence. Annie Graham is um the lead character. And basically the film starts off with the grandmother dying. And the grandmother dies and she's wearing this weird necklace that has this sort of symbol. And the symbol is just so The symbol creeped me out because it's a symbol that is used as a logo by a current 
movie production company. I really can't even think of it right now. I, not Lionsgate. Not Lionsgate. Uh, I really want to look this up now. Lionsgate. Let me see. Not Lionsgate. It's something else. It's, it's another movie company that uses this this symbol as a way to whatever, you know, promote the movies or whatever. But the mother is wearing this necklace. And Annie is also wearing this necklace. She has it on as well. And um, she speaks about her mother. She says, like, you know, she just feels bad about even talking about her mother at the uh, eulogy because she feels as though she's revealing some secrets because her mother was always a very secretive and private person. And it just felt really just wrong. So the people that were at the funeral were weird as fuck. Like they were just smiling and they were they they were smiling like all teeth. Like you could see all their teeth. And they just kept smiling at Annie. Annie's daughter. Annie's daughter, uh, what's her name? Charlie and her son Peter. So Peter is played by Alex Alex Wolf. If you remember the Naked Brothers band, that's him. He's like the older brother. So they're all smiling at them or whatever. And the daughter is drawing weird ass drawings at the funeral as well. She has like a notepad and she's drawing and she's eating chocolate. And her dad tells her to stop drawing weird shit. He asked her, does the chocolate have peanuts in it? Because she's severely allergic to chocolates. I mean, she's severely allergic to peanuts, sorry. So, they leave the funeral. Everything's cool. The mom is buried. Or so they think. And life goes on. But Annie just has a weird-ass feeling. Because... Her, her, her and her mother weren't really that close, but just her death puts a weird, puts her in a weird space. And I feel like a lot of us could probably relate to that. Um, if you have an estranged family member that you felt like you were supposed to be close to, but you guys just weren't close. And um, when they die, it's like you're mourning, but you're also very confused. And you don't know how to feel about their death. And that was exactly what was happening to Annie. So she went to a group therapy and she was just talking about her really weird relationship with her mom. Like the dynamics of their relationship was really weird. And she was saying um, her mom, she kept, well, first off, she discussed that she kept her mom away from her son, Peter for a really long time and then when she got pregnant again she let her mom take her daughter Charlie and she would breastfeed her and that was nasty as fuck to me like that was really nasty as fuck and basically she said that growing up her household was fucked up too um like their relationship and once she hit adulthood was weird but at home it was really fucked up because 
her dad had some sort of um he had like three mental disorders i want to say he was psychotic depressive um yeah manic episodes and he was schizophrenic and i want to say her brother had one of those disorders as well and as a result her mother used that to discredit any claims that they made against her which was that her father claimed that her mother was trying to starve him and she was trying to kill him and he was just going crazy and then her brother swore that his mother was trying to put people inside of him and when you hear Someone has a mental disorder and they're schizophrenic and psychotic and depressed and all sorts of combinations that um, mental disorders that are comorbid with each other. People would generally just discredit them, especially people who aren't um, as knowledgeable about those disorders would just quickly dismiss anything that they say and just attribute it to an episode or a hallucination but things take a turn for the worse when Charlie dies Peter is forced to take Charlie to a high school party Charlie goes to the party and for whatever reason these high schoolers had weed drinks like liquor and they had this perfectly baked chocolate cake with peanuts all over it it was the strangest shit to me because I just don't know the typical teen party that would just have one nicely baked cake. Just one. But we'll get into that towards the end. So, Charlie, of course, eats the cake. Peter freaks out. He's trying to get her to the hospital. And her throat is closing. She's breaking out in hives. Like, her time is just running out. So, he's speeding. And they live in, like, some... Like, I don't know if it ever said what state they lived in, but they lived in one of those states whereas a hospital was many, many miles away. They were in, like, a remote location, and everything just took, you know, 30 minutes to get to, or maybe longer, maybe even an hour, but there were neighborhoods that were somehow close. But he takes her. He's trying to get her to the hospital, but it doesn't work out, and... She sticks her head out the window for air because she kept saying she couldn't breathe. And they go past a light post, like a, like a, uh, you know, like those wood things that they connect the power lines to. And her head just smacks into it and smacks off. Like her head just pops the fuck off. It was, it was pretty crazy. And he goes into shock and he's just fucking stuck. But. In this scene, you see that same symbol that the grandmother had in her casket and Annie was wearing on her necklace at the funeral on this this light post thing. Like it's engraved. So Charlie's dead. She's she's fucking done. Like yeah. So Peter just drives home with the rest of her body while her head is on the street. And I I really couldn't tell if he was compelled or if 
he was just in shock or was it a mixture of the two. But he just drove home with the rest of her body, went home, and he laid down, and he just kind of just laid there, really. And the mom, Annie, went outside, and she saw her daughter's body in the car, and she just just fell apart. She just fell completely apart. And things just really got really shitty in the Graham household. It just got really bad. And I haven't really talked about the husband much, but he also plays a part as well. So Steve Graham, the husband, the father of Annie's children, and her husband. Yes, her husband. Poor, unfortunate soul. He's only related to the kids. He's not even related to her, of course. But he falls victim to this whole thing that his mother-in-law designed for them for whatever fucking reason. So he gets an email from where from where the grandmother's buried, from the cemetery where the grandmother's buried, that basically the grave had been dug up. And he tries to keep it under wraps because he knows that Annie is still mourning. So he doesn't say anything. But over time, their household just gets stranger and stranger and stranger. And Annie tries to go to group therapy after Charlie dies, but she just just couldn't do it. But she was caught in the parking lot by some woman who claimed to have seen her before and or she recognized her from the meeting that she went to before when she talked about um her relationship with her mom and her upbringing so the woman is like oh you know you don't have to come in but we should really talk sometime you know you don't have to go to the therapy I mean the meeting but you can always come over my house and um just just talk to me sometimes if it feels better than being around a bunch of people and this is the part where Annie becomes really vulnerable and she begins to lack discernment greatly. And she meets up with this woman and they go to her house. They sit and they talk. But when she walks into the woman's house, she's already a little confused because the woman has a mat that was sewn and designed the same exact way that her mother used to make doormats. It just looked exactly the same. And she just kind of was like, hmm, my mom used to make those. And she just kind of blew it off, whatever. But she still went and talked to the lady and hung out with her and chatted or whatever. And she stopped hanging out with the lady. But she bumped into her at the store or something. And the lady basically tricked her into doing a seance. She said, you know, my grandson died, but I can still talk to him sometimes. And I do this, that, and he writes back to me on a chalkboard and blah, 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 blah. So she's just automatically freaked the fuck out. But she decides to get Peter and Steve to join in with her on a seance. Like, oh, no big deal. 
We'll just do a seance. We'll just talk to Charlie and see what's going on with her. But it just it just gets really fucked up. Like this movie just gets this movie just gets really disturbing. So after Charlie dies, things get really bad, like I said, and the dynamics of the household gets really weird, you know, since Amy had been meeting and she had been thinking about the seance. But prior to her asking Peter and um, Stephen to join in with her, she starts, because she does like figurines for um, art exhibits and museums and stuff. And she started recreating figurines to depict her upbringing, her, the weird relationship with her mom, and um, the crime scene of when, where Charlie died at, her head, and stuff like that. So, Stephen tells her, like, you know, you're just being weird as shit, like, just relax, whatever. And they're having a dinner. And she zaps on the sun because she felt like he was to blame for her daughter's death. Like, it was her fault. I mean, it was his fault. And tensions get high, and they cuss each other out, and they fuss each other out, and everybody storms off. And then she tries to make she tries to make amends with him, but not really. She's wanted to be nice enough to get him to agree to do this this uh seance with her so they agree to do it and then things get weird and they're not really sure who exactly they're talking to and then he just tells her peter tells her to stop he's just like mom please stop i don't even know what this is i'm scared of shit like i don't want to do this anymore and the husband is just like what the fuck is going on what am i a part of So they move on, whatever, and then Peter starts to see um, apparitions of his sister, and then he starts to have weird dreams where his mother is trying to kill him, or there's like bugs all over his face, like his sister had bugs all over her face after she was decapitated. So he just starts to go through some weird shit of of his own. And then when he went to school, something took over his body and he was banging his head on his desk until he was unconscious and his nose was bleeding. And, um, yeah. So all the while, Annie is at home. She's digging around the house and she's looking through some of the stuff because before the mom died, she was living with them and she went through the attic and she was like, it's flies everywhere. Like it's something smells weird. She started looking through some of her mom's stuff. She got distracted and was looking for that map. Then she saw a bunch of flies like in this particular corner of the attic and she realized that her mom's body was put in the attic and she just was confused wasn't a thousand percent sure why her mom how or why her mom's body ended up in the attic 
So then she also looks up and sees that symbol from the grandmother's necklace. I mean, the grand, yeah, the grandmother's necklace, Annie's necklace, and then that same one that was engraved into the light pole. So now everything is just going crazy, and she's trying to call her husband, but the husband is dealing with Peter and trying to get him safe. And then now things get like really, really scary at this part. This was the part that legitimately scared me. <laughs> like I was in the movie theater like, oh my God, I don't want to look. I was like peeking through my fingers and everything. I was just being real extra. But so he goes to sleep. Peter is asleep. He's unconscious. He lays in the bed. And Annie and Steve are downstairs and they're talking or whatever. And one of the things that Annie found in the in the attic was a book of like weird ass spells or some shit. And she saw like their names or something like that. Oh no, 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 I'm lying. This book was the book that Charlie had wrote in, I believe. It was some kind of connection between the spirit or entity that they spoke to during the seance that had wrote in this book because it was supposed to be giving Charlie something to write with and something to write on because her whole thing was that she liked to, she liked to draw. And then... And then Annie came across something in the attic. But needless to say, she tried to throw this book in the fireplace to just... She thought that this would just cancel out everything that had transpired over the past few days. And... No, actually, sorry. I'm lying again. Because prior to this particular day, when Peter had hurt himself, she thought about burning this book. But then she caught on fire. So she realized that she had some kind of connection to the book. So she just was like, oh, shit, like, I'm just going to keep it. I'm not going to do anything to it. But then once things just started getting really fucked up and the hallucinations were getting crazy and uh, Peter was telling her, like, why are you trying to kill me? And then she was forced to admit that during the time she was pregnant with him. She really didn't want to have a baby. She didn't really want him, but she continued to have him because she tried to give herself an abortion or have a miscarriage, but he ended up coming early and she ended up going into labor. So then she just ended up keeping him. And then that just kind of changed their whole relationship a lot within the course of minutes. But everything just started getting really fucked up in the Graham house. So she just told Stephen, like, you know, things are happening and I'm not sure why. And my mother's body is in the attic and there's all this weird stuff. And uh, the lady that she had the seance with disappeared into thin air. She wasn't answering the phone anymore. And she was following Peter at school. And she was telling Peter, like time is coming like some weird shit like that mind you Peter had no clue who she was because his mother had never told him 
that she was meeting with some woman and she wasn't even telling any of them that she was going to therapy. So Annie pronounces to Stephen that she's just going to kill herself. She's going to end this all and just put her family out of its misery. So she throws the book in the fire. She fucked up. And this part was, like, really, really confusing to me. Um, I, will, I really want to get this movie on DVD. So this is... I would really have to watch the scene. I would have to start from the scene where she was in the attic to really make sense of this because she... There was a connection between her and the book because the first time she tried to set it on fire, it burnt. It started catching flames on her. Like her body started to combust or something. But then when she threw the book in the fire, it killed Steven. And he died instantly. He was just charred. And she just freaked out. She was just like, oh, my God. And then the scene went black. Then you have poor Charlie who's upstairs and his house is like dark as shit. It's like 4 o'clock in the morning. He's been asleep since 4 o'clock yesterday. So, I'm trying to think. Like, this part was so scary because you just can't, you know your house, you know like some weird shit is going on with your family and something is attacking you spiritually and then you wake up to a quiet ass house with all the lights off and you haven't seen anybody since yesterday morning so he wakes up and I want to say it's like it was like early in the morning but it was early like it was early to the extent where it was still dark but you could tell the day was just like dusk Yes, that's, that's what I'm thinking of. So, nobody's around. Don't know what's going on. It's just scary. And he calls out for his parents, and he walks down into his, like, living room area where the, far, where the father is charred by the fire police. And then the camera pans over and you see, you see the mom is like floating in the air. She's in the, the, like the corner of the ceiling. She's just standing there watching him and he sees her. He's just like, oh shit, like what the fuck is going on? And she's like crawling on the ceiling and shit chasing him around the house and he's just losing his fucking mind and he's running upstairs and then of course he conveniently runs into the attic where his grandmother's dead body is and he's just so scared and confused and then he looks around and he sees like all these naked old white people up there and they're like chanting some shit and then you see all of those weird ass symbols and it was just like what the hell is going on and then the mother's coming and he just jumps out he just jumps out the window and then she kind of goes crazy and 
she's just floating. Like, she's just flying in the fucking air at this point. I don't even think she's Annie anymore. I don't think that that's who is. Somebody moved in, and she's not Annie. So... She uh she cuts her she cuts her own head off. And that was just really fucking disturbing. And it was like the noise was really detailed. Like you felt like you could really hear somebody. Like every noise, all of the blood splattering, the sound of uh bone being cut and sawed. It was ugh. She cuts her head completely off. So now she's just a headless body, but she's still moving around and everything. And what I forgot to mention was that there is this tree house that Charlie, the daughter, and who turned out to be the main character, the main character of this, this movie. Even though she wasn't in it for long, she was the focus. She was like the focus point of this ritual and this curse and this satanic uh, cult. Like she, she was the she was the more important person. Like she was the person that completed the ritual and. So basically they all of these naked people make their way to this treehouse that Charlie liked to be in. And that was her favorite place to go outside and be in the treehouse and sleep out there and just be there. And that was um where the mother would spend her time when she was mourning to feel like she was being closer to her daughter during the time um shortly after she had died. But it was just too cold and too dangerous to stay out there. But she was staying and it was this weird red light that would cut on, but supposedly it was the heater, whatever. So, Peter just was just like, fuck everything. And he just jumps out the window of the attic. So, he jumps from the very fucking top of the house. And he dies. Like, immediately, of course. But a light enters a light enters his body, like some floating fairy type thing. It reminds me of like um if you've ever played Zelda, the fairies are like these glowing orbs of light, pink and purple and blue, but they have wings attached to this aura, this ball of aura. So it goes into him. And he wakes up and he starts walking to this treehouse. And when you go inside, you see, like, more naked people. And Charlie's head is preserved in there with... Charlie's head is preserved. I forget what they put her on top of. But they gave her a crown. And she was considered the best thing since sliced cheese. Because she completed what they had been waiting years for. And so Charlie became the host for the payment. So the payment is a demon. 
So she became the host. Like she became she became the host of it, but it still needed a male body. So that's when Peter comes in. And which is why the light goes into him. So when I was reading about this, it was basically said, so here, I'll read this. It says, Charlie eventually became the host for Payman, but Payman still need, needed a, a male host of Lee's bloodline, which is the grandmother, to bestow her riches. Which is why she didn't go after Annie's husband, Steve, because he wasn't related to them. But it was unfortunate that he still had to die in the midst of it. I, it didn't make any fucking sense to me and I feel like I rationalized it, but now I can't remember where I came to the conclusion of. But basically, when Charlie died, Joan uses... Joan is the woman that approached Annie outside of the group therapy meeting and then had the seance with her. So when Charlie dies, Joan uses this as an opening to use the seance as a way to transfer payment from Charlie to Peter. Payment is still a still able to use his influence to burn Steve alive and have Annie chop her own head off. Excuse me, but the cult of Payment still needs the demon to have a host. And Payment is a real demon. Like this is a real cult. Like the symbol is real. The um the A twenty four team who came up with the movie said that it was some disturbing things when he had to dig into the history of payment in order to create this movie for us all. They said it was pretty disturbing, so they tried not to dig, like, way too deep. So, when Peter threw himself out the attic window, it provided the opening for Charlie and payment to inhabit his body. So, the cult got what they wanted, and then Peter is to spend the rest of his days as the host for payment. That basically killed off his whole, his whole fucking household is dead. But I'm trying to remember. So it was like there was a part that I really can't fucking remember, but I'm trying to think. There was something about the relationship between Charlie and her grandmother. So the grandmother that had just died at the start of the movie, she didn't she didn't really have a relationship with Peter as much. She just didn't really want to well, the mother kept him, Annie kept him away from the grandmother, but she really gravitated to Charlie, like, a lot, a lot. Like, she even took her over, and Annie even said that she felt compelled to hand her over to allow her to breastfeed, which lets you know that this had been in the makings and in the works for a really long time. So... Let's go through, so I was reading about some of the the details that people tend to miss. And I didn't miss the part about King Payment being real. I totally read up, I googled that immediately. Like, that's 
that's a real thing it's it's 100% factual there's a real satanic cult that worships this thing or whatever the fuck and I really just didn't want to dig too deep into it because it reminds me of like the rabbit hole that is the dark web and how scary it can be so it is uh let me see so to be clear payment is real Ari Aster is the the writer and director of Hereditary and said whether you think he's actually real, literally real, depends on whether you believe demons and spirits are real. For what it's worth, mentions of payment go back centuries. He's even included in the 17th century grimoire, Lesser Key of Solomon. And that was one of the books that Annie came across in the attic. And that is a real fucking book. Like, I think you can get that off Amazon or something. So, and then another thing was that Charlie had never been herself. And I didn't really want to get too extensive with the plot because I felt like it's hard to get through beginning and end without derailing with every little detail. But in the movie, Charlie liked to create things and liked to put things together. And now that I remember, that was basically what she was, like some kind of put together invention thing body that was made up of various parts that was what she was when she was in the treehouse so her head was put onto all of these weird knickknacks and such to create her quote-unquote body and Annie had explained early in the film that when Peter was born she had kept him away like I said before but when she had Charlie she just gave her up to the grandmother and even as she so Ellen doted on Charlie insisted on breastfeeding the baby girl herself even as she made it clear she wished Charlie had been a boy because we later discovered Payman prefers a male host so when you think about this you think about the fact that Annie didn't realize that or maybe Annie wasn't herself anymore because her keeping Peter away from the grandmother was very strategic because where at this point we know for a fact that there was some sort of sacrifice made and if Peter was close to his grandmother he would have been already sacrificed like there would have been no room for Charlie there would have been no purpose for her but the grandmother rearranged some things and made it whereas um like she rearranged some things so that Charlie would still be accepted as a host or for like a sacrifice for the king, quote unquote, king payment. But they still needed, they still needed, what's his name? They still needed Peter to some extent. So they kind of just used both of her grandchildren, diced them up and used, and used what, used what they needed from them. So, now, people may, like I pointed out before, another one of those hidden gems was, well, like the Easter egg was that those symbols, the designs on the walls, and there was all types of weird words as well. So, there was the symbol, and then there was, like, pandemonium and zazas. 
But the thing about this was that I really had to get on Google for this part because the film never explained what those words were. But it seemed to be words that were used for like a different, like an alternative meaning of an everyday word. So like there was a word called liftoch, which is Hebrew for open. And pandemonium could be understood as a common definition for chaos. And there was a lot of chaos in that house at that time when everything went down. So it just, all of those words were like little hitting meanings. And it was up to you to kind of pay attention enough, I guess, to understand what those words meant. And it was interesting to see Annie go to group therapy when she's married to a psychiatrist. But, mm, like, that was just really interesting. And she didn't even want to tell him. So, yeah, like, that was, those were one of those movies. Ugh. Hereditary is one of those movies where you really have to pay attention and maybe even watch it twice because of all of the hidden things that they try to put in it and make it make the plot so intricate, so intricate and interesting and deep. And I mean, be my guess if you want to get into all of the King Payment stuff and all of the weirdness and creepiness of the occult life. But, um, yeah, that's pretty much it for the movies that I saw recently. I just realized I spent so much time talking about those movies, but this is exactly why I would really love, well, I'm going to love doing more podcast episodes about TV shows and movies because there's so much to cover and so much to discuss. So if you haven't seen Black Klansman, you really should. And if you haven't seen Hereditary, you really should. It should be on, like... Um, iTunes at this point to rent. It should probably be on Redbox. And Black Klansman should probably be coming on DV- out on DVD soon. Maybe just not yet because I feel like it's only been out for about a month. So it'll probably take a little longer, but I realize that nowadays movies go out on DVD really quick. And I'm not really sure if it's because the movie just didn't perform well or they just want to hurry up and collect their little Blu-ray coins or whatever. But um, this is it for part one. And in the next part, we're going to get into some some current stuff. So some Castle Rock and how it also links to... So Castle Rock is a Hulu original. And then how it also connects in is similar to another Netflix original. So Hulu original and a Netflix original that are so, so similar to me, as well as um, I'm going to talk about Insecure as well. And that'll be in the next part. So stay tuned. Hey guys, welcome back to part two of the Earth to Tia podcast, um, episode five. So I said in the last part that 
we were going to be discussing Castle Rock, and which is a Hulu original, and then this next Netflix original, which is really similar, and as well as Insecure. But um, I also wanted to add in another Stephen King uh, movie to go hand in hand with this this Castle Rock thing. So Stephen King has been working to get his works, his literary works, to turn into, you know, feature films and series. And he's really getting his coins together because now we have It, and then we're going to get a part two when all of the kids are older. And then he had 1922 on Netflix. And I really love 1922, which is about, like, this man that lives in Oklahoma, I believe, his wife and his son they live together and the wife inherits some farmland from her father which she could really sell for a pretty penny and she really didn't want to keep it so her plan was to sell it to whoever could give her the most money for it and he really wanted to keep it because he felt like it would be the perfect opportunity for him to be this this farmer that he never had the chance to be and he really wasn't fucking good at it but he made his son join in with him to help him kill his his wife and the son would be killing his mother, which is which was even worse. And um they teamed up together and they successfully killed the wife and threw her body in a well. So this really came back to bite them because it wasn't just like, oh, I'm just gonna kill her, throw her, throw her in a well, and we're just gonna go live our best lives. Because the son ended up being miserable. And the husband ended up being miserable as well. And they were just haunted by their mother, the guilt, her entity. All types of things had plagued them in different ways, spiritually and emotionally. The son ended up running off with some girl that he fell in love with. And they ended up freezing to death. And the father never knew what had happened to him or where he went because he just really didn't want to be with his dad anymore because he just felt really shitty about the fact that he helped his dad kill his mom. And the father, the he was plagued with having farmland that was no good. It was bad, um, like bad dirt, bad plot. Like it just didn't really work out. The house started to crumble and fall apart. There was infestations. The wife would come to him at night and she would haunt him. She would follow him around the house. And then she decided to make him even more miserable during his final days by telling him in excruciating detail how the son managed to die with his pregnant girlfriend as they froze to death in some abandoned house. So I really enjoyed that series. It was really cool. I mean, not series. I'm sorry, movie. It was really cool. Um, it was really creepy. It was it was an overall good good movie and it was just about men being pieces of shit and getting what they deserve. Cause don't we just all love that? Just seeing them get what they deserve after they've given us hell. So now we're gonna go into Castle Rock. So Castle Rock is a series starring Andre Holland. And Bill Skarsgård. So Andre Holland is from the amazing, amazing, amazing movie Moonlight. And Bill Skarsgård 
is I don't really know him for anything else, but he's most notably known for Hemlock Grove. According to me, that's just what I know him from. He was just really fucking good at being creepy. He's also the brother of, I want to say, Alexander Sarsgaard, who stars in Big Little Lies, and he was in True Blood. So, this series is an anthology. Um, I don't know why Siri just did that. But this series is an anthology, which means that it'll change every time. And, like, well, the characters and stuff will change every time, and it'll be a different situation or whatever. So, this particular season, which is the first season, is about, basically, this man. Well, it's not, it's not really just about just one person. Because it's about a series of factors that come into play that affect multiple people in this fictional town of Castle Rock, which is in, like, Maine. So it's supposed to be somewhat close to Boston, Massachusetts. So there's this black boy. He's, like, the only black person in this town. His name is Henry Deaver. And he's played by Andre Holland. So he no longer lives in Castle Rock anymore. He's been living in Texas. He's a death row attorney. and He tries to save people from dying and stuff. But most times they just end up getting a death sentence. So he's called back home to check on his mom. She has Alzheimer's. Ruth, who is played by Sissy Spacek, who was starring in the first Carrie yeah she started in the original Carrie so she was she she was already a part of Stephen King's thing so that's his adopted mom he was adopted and his adoptive dad had died some years ago and basically it was just her and she was living at home with her lover whom she had finally been able to be with since they had kept what they had going on to a minimum and a secret because she had been married to a pastor like how shitty would that be to be married to a pastor and have an affair with the town sheriff like that would just you know white folks have a field day with that so whatever so my husband dies when Henry was a little boy and Henry comes back to check on his mom, he realized that she has been taken care of by the sheriff. They're together now. This is their little love nest. But he was frustrated because he realized that, um, what's his name? So the sheriff's name is Alan. Alan moved his dad's grave plot somewhere, buried him off in the woods or whatever. Because I guess he felt like he wasn't deserving of a grave. I'm really not sure. White people pettiness is, is the next level. You just dig somebody up and put them somewhere else. It's fucked up. So, the thing about this show is just, it plays a, it, it plays a lot on our perspective of reality. And I don't want to spoil it too much because I feel like it's still... It's still new, so you all still have the opportunity to check it out and watch it. 
Um, the season had just ended like last week. So it really played on your perspective of reality, what you felt like you saw happen, what you felt like made sense. And Bill Skarsgård's character is the kid because nobody has a name for him. Nobody knows who he who he is or where he came from. Um, he hasn't aged. He always looks the same. And in the end, we still didn't know who the fuck he was and what was his purpose in Castle Rock in 2000. I want to say they fast forward the year to like 2018 or 2019. I can't remember. But what was his purpose at that time? And it got so confusing for me because I felt as though he had been lying. Because there was supposed to be this theory that the kid is lying because initially he tried to sway um, Henry Beaver's childhood friend Molly by convincing her that there was an alternate reality and there were schisms, sounds that they heard in the woods that opened up a portal and led them to all of these different realities and different points in time where they were both Henry, where the kid and Henry Deaver were both Henry, but on, but in two different realities, like if you can follow. But it'll only really make sense if you watch the show. So I want to put a lot of emphasis on that. But he was trying to convince Molly that she was much happier where she where she was in her part of reality and that she died and that he had a fiance and this that and the third and that the mother had died but the father continued to live for a while um until he had passed and then that's when he came it was just like this doesn't make any fucking sense because when you consider the fact that black henry had went to the house of this prison warden who had been keeping the kid in a bear cage or whatever in the reservoir. He had paintings of the kid from over a course of like 20 years. And it didn't add up with the kid's the story of him being him being Henry in another universe. It just didn't make sense. But when Henry asked him, who are you? He said, I'm the same as you. And then things really got weird when he tried to get Henry out into the woods at gunpoint and convince him to open up this portal so that they could travel through and get him back to where he was supposed to go. But my conclusion was that he was some time dimension traveling demon because he his face changed into some like weird ass monster face when he snapped on Henry when they were in the woods trying to get to this quote unquote schism door portal so I just don't think that he meant any well and he doesn't age and I'm like that doesn't make any sense how can you be in another dimension and you never age You've never gotten old or gray or anything. So clearly he's not human. Because the regular Henry had aged since he was a little boy. 
But another thing that I couldn't make sense of was why Henry pushed his adoptive father off the cliff. Was it because his father threatened to kill Ruth, his adoptive mother, for having an affair with the town sheriff? I don't know. But this all links into the fact that like I said before, it's all based on perception and what you think the reality. Like, it's all subjective. And I came to that conclusion when I when I watched the episode. I want to say it was either episode 8 or episode 9. When Ruth was leaving chess pieces around and she was coming back to visit them. And she was having visions or being placed in those exact moments of when she left it. And it was kind of hard to tell if it was really happening or she was having some gaps or hallucinations in her memory because she had Alzheimer's. But it got even harder to have a clear distinction of what was happening now and what had already happened because she killed Alan. And then Alan knocks on her door. And says that he heard a gunshot. So he died. And then you have another Alan coming to our door saying that he heard a gunshot. He was being told to check on it. And it was just. It's just really fucking confusing because I'm like, is this like a time loop? Are they just going to continuously experience this and relive this over and over and over again? But. Not really because eventually she died. But then again, who's to say because, hey, it's a Stephen King series based on various Stephen King books. So another thing that was really confusing, I'm trying to think I lost my my train of thought. But Alan coming in was really confusing. But I also remember when Alan stated to the new prison warden of Shawshank I forgot to say this was Shawshank prison was that he told the new warden T. Porter to not let that kid out of the cage he said don't let him out but he still ended up making it out and it makes me wonder how differently things would have gone if he would have just been left in he would have been left in that cage in the reservoir after the old prison warden committed suicide and i think one of the interesting things that um someone pointed out in their explanation for what they felt like the ending meant was that people who deal with the kid have to live with a sense of guilt because they cannot determine whether it is good or bad to kill him because you do not know the truth about who he is or what he is and you can leave him there and try to save try to preserve him until you come to some conclusion or you can be driven mad by the fact that you feel like it can be morally wrong to keep him like you know what I'm saying it's just it's it's like a like a toss-up you you kill him and then it's like oh he was a good guy or 
you know, I should have just let him do what he had to do to get back to wherever he claimed he was from. Or you leave him in a cage. You feel bad. You're caging him because what if he's a decent person or a decent thing? And it's just hard to tell. And uh, Andre Holland, Holland's character, Henry Deaver, was continuing the cycle of keeping the kid in the cage again. And the kid asked him, like, how long are we going to do this? And Henry just responded by saying he didn't know. And then the kid gave, like, some creepy-ass smile. But also I wanted to point out that Bill Skarsgård is also It. He also plays the clown in It. I forgot to mention that. So I was like, is the creepy smile somehow a connection to It? Is this how it came to be like can he take on many different forms it was just kind of confusing trying to make sense of it and it really sucks because it's an anthology so we may not get an explanation for what the fuck happened like I don't know. One of these days, I'm just going to sit and rewatch the whole series, and then I'll just revisit this in a different episode. But this also reminded me of the series Dark on Netflix. And anybody who listens, I tell them about Dark <laughs> because I love this show so much. I really do. So this is a. This is a German series. So a German Netflix original series. And it had premiered, I want to say, like late last year. And I had discovered it just randomly. I don't know. Something was just telling me to check it out. So I was like, cool, I'll listen. I mean, cool, I'll watch it and see where this goes. And ever since then, I was just like, wow, like, I really love this shit. Like, where has this been my whole life? Because it's the exact amount of nerdy the exact amount of like the right amount of nerdy the right amount of confusing and the right amount of predictable it's like you can follow but you also don't know what to expect next and that's exactly what I need out of a tv show because I don't want to feel like I know exactly what's going to happen or just feel like I'm just lost because when you get confused uh with a tv show it can either be frustrating or or boring because it's like I don't follow so in this series follows a young boy and it's so deep that I just don't think that I'll have enough time in a day to explain what the fuck is going on but This is really, like, one of those series where it's hard to watch. Because once you get a firm grasp, like they say, uh, like on Spongebob, when he was like, firmly grasp it. And then he stuck the the jellyfish net through Squidward's cast. Yeah. So once you firmly grasp what's going on, for the most part, it's just like, whoa. So basically, this is about a town in Germany 
and it's pretty rural I want to say it's not really like a big city it's kind of just and it's not suburban so yeah it's definitely rural but um everybody in this town pretty much grew up together so their kids are growing up together and they're raising their kids together like they were when they grew up but they all have like lots of secrets and they're all tangled up together and it all ties into like some illegal plant stuff and like illegal nuclear plants and relationships and affairs and secrets and all sorts of stuff like that so two children go missing in a small town and The missing children basically exposes the past, like the sinful past and all of the scandalous acts and secrets and double lives that these people in in this town are living. So it forces all of these things to come to the light because these people really have to dig deep. Well, this, this group of kids that grew up together well, now they're adults, have to really force out a lot of things in order to get to the bottom of what's going on with all of the children that are missing, especially the children that go missing every 33 years. Because now there's a pattern. They've come to the conclusion that there's a pattern between when these kids go missing, especially um, when it's continued to be the same town and they're going missing in the same area the same way. And um, it's really puzzling. It's really, it can be vexing at times. But it's, like I said, it's the right amount because it keeps you pulled in. But there are all these alternate realities and it makes you think of like the butterfly effect where they can, they can control time. And like there's a character in the movie who can control time. And his name is Jonas. And... His character who has grown up is traveling in between 30, current time, 33 years ahead, and 33 years behind. So he has to be careful because he's trying to get to the bottom of who is abducting these children, why they're abducting the children, because they're like burning them, they're blacking their eyes out. And all of this weird shit that they're doing is some sort of experiment to um, to defy the laws of something. They're testing something in regards to uh, religion. But there hasn't been a true conclusion yet because, like I said, it's only on the first season. So the next season should be coming up soon, hopefully before um, 2019 because I'm just dying to know what's going on so Jonas is able to travel back and forth between like I said the present time 33 years ahead and 33 years behind but he has to be careful what he does because it can really affect the future and people's existence and so on and it made me think of Castle Rock because Ruth was able to into certain times but it was kind of complicated because (sighs) Stephen King made it confusing because you couldn't determine whether what you were seeing was the true reality but in dark it's it's absolutely the true reality 
Um, it's just a matter of getting to the bottom of what's happening in this, this German town and why these kids are going missing. And, like, the kids were going missing, and then they were being held prisoner in, like, some 80s-themed room where they had to listen to 80s music and watch 80s TV shows and sleep in, like, some kid's room. And then they had some kind of contraption put around their face. I mean, put around, yeah, put around their face where it covered, like, their eyes and their ears. And that's why by the time their bodies were found in the woods, um, they were burnt up because whatever it was that that person is trying to figure out didn't work. So they would dispose of the body. Um, yeah, like, I just really love that show. And I think you guys should really give it a watch because it's one of those shows where you just really find yourself getting engulfed, involved, and it's so contagious. And I want to consider it to be like a Game of Thrones. Everybody who watched Game of Thrones was really apprehensive at first, even myself, and even the people that I convinced to watch it. And then it was like once they watched it, they were like, oh, wow, like I do really love this. And and then you couldn't stop watching, and then you fell in love with the characters, and then they started dying and blah, blah, blah. But I'll probably do an episode on Game of Thrones closer to the time when um, it's the new season, well, the final, ugh, the final season is supposed to air. But let's get into Insecure, one of my favorite TV shows. I really love this show. I really love how Issa is just a hot-ass mess, and it's just so relatable. Like, who can't relate to being in their 20s and just being like, I don't know what the fuck going on. Sometimes I fuck up. And things don't make sense, but I'm just living my truth. And then you have your friends to go through it all with you and the ups and downs of everything. But where I'm going with this is that this particular season is, okay, I want to say this is season four. This is is like season three, sorry. I think this is season three. Correct me if I'm wrong, but this isn't. A pivotal moment for Issa because I feel like a lot of young women are like Issa whereas they've they've been in relationships since that crucial point of their lives like that adulthood point where you know you've been dating the same person since you were in college and in college I feel like it we're still growing up well we were still if you're still in college whatever but you were still growing up at that point. You were still coming of age, still learning about yourself, still developing. So when you're dating somebody, you're trying to grow up. And then they're growing up. And then y'all trying to make it work whereas y'all growing together. And it's just not working. You know what I'm saying? So I feel like that's basically what happened to her and Lawrence. Is that they were cool when they were cool. And then she started to realize like she wanted something else. And it's nothing wrong with dating your high school sweetheart or whatever, but it gets really complicated because you would have to hope that both of you guys can um, be conducive to the paths that you guys are trying to take in life. And when it's not working, it's just like, oh, well, I'm a different person now. Like, I have different morals, I have different values, or I just see myself going in a different direction compared to the direction that you see yourself going into. So that can really throw a wrench in everything. And 
I don't want to defend her for cheating with Daniel, but I think it was just like acting out. You've been with the same person doing the same thing for so long, and then it was just like, like you went through about two, three stages of my life together, and I don't really feel like I'm that same person I was when we first got together. And I think it was really fucking stupid that she stayed with Daniel. Like, your relationship is over because of the actions that you took with Daniel. And now you're living with him when you could have just crashed with your friend or something. Like... Yeah, like, you could have crashed with Molly or Kelly or whoever the fuck. Like, it's it's so many other things that could have been done, but, hey, it's Issa. Who would she be if she wasn't a fuck-up? Who makes stupid decisions? But, um, yeah, I just really feel like living with Daniel was just really dumb. It was just really dumb. And then she tries to link up with Nathan and see, the thing about Nathan is that I saw somebody tweet and they were saying that, like, maybe Nathan is, like, a felon or, like, he only acted like he was interested in Issa or dated Issa because um, he wanted to basically woo her and manipulate her for when the investigation started for the assault. Because, I mean, we all knew it was coming. Because... The way he ran off and then that guy just was, like, sitting there, like, oh, my God, my face. And then he went MIA on her. Like, just stop answering her calls, stop answering the phone. So, yeah, but I don't know. This seems like a really, it started off seeming like Issa was getting her shit together because she got the property manager job. Now she's looking for a new job. And I wouldn't even consider her getting a new job a bad thing because she just wasn't happy where she was. She was very, very unhappy in her environment and her creativity and all of the things that she wanted to do was just very limited. So I felt like it was really important for her to be able to be in an environment where she felt like she was making use of her college education, her full potential. So I just wouldn't even shame that and I think a lot of people might need to take that that leap of faith and maybe even myself but she just she still is like childlike like she wants to have a block party and it's like you just quit your job and you're a property manager part-time kind of and you drive left maybe you should hold off on that (laughs) and then now Nathan is getting shaky and I think the crazy part is that what the best part about the different the way that she presented this particular episode is to show that nobody is doing much better than the other like there's always trade-offs and downsides just like when they did that quick run through of what Lawrence had been up to and he just was feeling like you know he was just a little too old to be doing all of the dating around and sleeping with women and getting STDs and 
stuff like that. But at the end of the day, his career was fulfilling. And then, you know, you have Issa who she left her career, but she thought, well, I mean, yeah, she really thought she might have had something fulfilling with Nathan. But, yeah, it's just, I don't know. I just can't tell how this how this is going to turn out for Issa because she just doesn't seem to have the best luck. But now the season is about to be over. There's only, like, two episodes left. And I'm just like, what the hell? It just started. Like, is this, like, some HBO racism shit where we get, like, 15 minutes of an episode and then uh, we get six episodes per season? Like, is this really a good deal that she has? Because it feels really shitty, especially from a fan perspective. Where it's like, as soon as we start to get into the meat of it, it's like, oh, it's over. Season finale. We'll see you next year. Like, bitch, I want more. And now you're probably going to have people start to create their fan fiction because they're just not getting their fix every year with every season. But, um, yeah, so I think this is pretty much it for episode five, part two. And um, I haven't really decided if I want to do this weekly. I feel like I might end up doing this weekly. But I don't know. We'll see. Um, There is a new episode of American Horror Story Apocalypse coming on tonight. We're going to be on episode two. So the next week I will discuss um, the first two episodes. And then um, I'll get into... What's the show? Insecure again. And then I'll probably discuss like another movie or something. I'll come up with something for you guys to watch. So yeah, definitely tune in again. And yeah, I'll be back next week. Bye.